hard-hitting medical truth, cutting through conflict and confusion to the understanding you're searching for. Join Dr. Peter McCullough, world-renowned medical expert and practicing physician for this edition of the McCullough Report. Your life may depend on it. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. This is Ashlyn Nicole Wilson, and this is a song inspired when her church was shut down during the COVID-19 pandemic. It's called Start With Me. Yesterday I had this dream. That we lived in a world of peace. Every voice was loud and clear and heard. And nobody was afraid. I know this isn't present reality. That's an absolutely wonderful piece, and I had to share with you a part of it. We have a short program today in terms of the monologue, since I dedicated a lot of time to our guest uh, interviewee today. Brief update on monkeypox. Monkeypox is part of the orthopox virus related to smallpox, cowpox, camelpox. It's been around since 1950, first case in 1970s. Uh, outbreak in the United States, 2003, 70 suspected cases, 40 confirmed, no deaths. It's treated with a drug called Ticoviramat or TPOX, a very effective uh, viral inhibitor. It's been around since 2018. We also have varicella immunoglobulin, and there is a uh, vaccine, a live attenuated vaccine from a company, Genios. And what's happened is, uh, in 2019, there were uh, papers written by uh, Simpson, another one by Beer, all in a sense planning for a terrorist attack with monkeypox. And they outlined uh, the treatments, that it's an illness that is spread largely by saliva, close contact, kissing, sexual contact, and then touching the blisters or pu- pustules and blisters that are all over the body and over the hands. It's unmistakable when someone has monkeypox. Uh, And in these papers, uh, they outline uh, the various treatments and almost as if uh, we're getting ready for this worldwide. There was a security conference in Munich in March of 2021 that outlined a scenario of a possible uh, attack. 
and uh, the release date for the monkeypox was going to be in May 15th of 2022, seven days before the World Economic uh, and World Health Organization meetings uh, in um, in Davos uh, and in uh, Brussels, respectively. And uh, indeed, that's exactly when we started to hear the uh, story on monkeypox. There are uh, dozens of confirmed cases around the world. Uh, they're in isolation. They're relatively easily treated. But in a hyperbolic response, the United States government has uh, committed to purchasing 13 million doses of the Genios micro, uh, monkeypox vaccine, which um, has was only approved based on uh, neutralizing antibody studies. There are no clinical outcomes with the Genios vaccine. We have no idea if it would really prevent a real case of monkeypox. And on top of that, in the um, FDA briefing booklet and in the package insert, there's great concern on the Genios vaccine and the development of myocarditis or heart inflammation um, with elevations in cardiac troponin. They had tested 3,003 individuals and uh, had a large number develop an elevation in cardiac troponin indicating uh, cardiac injury which is extremely worrisome. So that's a brief monkeypox update. You'll hear me on the major news outlets, uh, including NTD, Epoch Times, Newsmax, and Fox News over the uh, week, next week or so. So uh, keep an, an ear out for that, an eye out for that as we update. I think largely it's an injection of fear right before the uh, World Health Organization and the Davos meeting, the World Economic Forum, to, in a sense, get the world more frightened regarding monkeypox than it ever should be, since it's a manageable uh, disease. One last point on monkeypox, uh, paper by Rao and colleagues, MMWR, nearly three dozen authors, monkeypox case, Dallas, Texas, in the summer of 2021, man comes from Africa, he flies in, goes to Atlanta, then to Dallas on airplanes, sees lots of people, uh, gets diagnosed with monkeypox, hospitalized largely just to keep him isolated, treated him with ticoviramat. He did fine. The important point is they checked every single one of his contacts. He didn't transmit it to anybody despite having flagrant monkeypox. So it's not that transmissible. Well, that's my brief monologue. I want to save the rest of the time today for Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Aaron Cariotti is a former professor of medicine. He's a psychiatrist. He's headed up the ethics program at the University of California at Irvine. And he has quite a story to tell regarding his own personal journey uh, on the resistance in taking the uh, COVID-19 vaccination and what happened to him professionally and career-wise. And then broadly about ethics uh, as they apply to uh, COVID-19 early treatment in the mass vaccination program institutions and what individuals are uh, dealing with and suffering with in their life with the menace of the COVID-19 vaccine. So let's get real. Let's get loud on America Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Are you tired of your tired vitamins? Consider Healthy Cell. These are pill-free vitamins that are in convenient gel packs. Uh, I like the Focus and Recall supplement. I use this a lot. You know, your brain uses a lot of energy and it depends on a variety of micronutrients and vitamins. Boost your short-term focus and long-term brain power with Healthy Cell's Focus and Recall Vitamins. So go to HealthyCell.com, use the code OUTLOUD, all capital letters, OUTLOUD for a 20% off 
your first order of any Healthy Cell product. Let's get real, let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. In 2008, the amount of concentrated time people could spend on a task without becoming distracted was 12 seconds. Five years later, it was only eight seconds, one second less than a goldfish. If you find yourself always distracted or having trouble recalling information, you're likely to fall behind in the demanding, fast-paced 21st century. In other words, brain performance is more critical now than ever. Boost your brain power with Healthy Cells Focus Plus Recall. Science-backed nootropics to sharpen focus, concentrate longer, enhance recall, improve mental speed, learn rapidly, and be more alert. It's a pill-free brain supplement made with maximum absorption technology designed to feed our brains at the cellular level. Take it for a test drive. Go to HealthyCell.com and use code OUTLOUD for 20% off your first order of Focus Plus Recall. That's HealthyCell.com. Code OUTLOUD for 20% off. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. It's a great pleasure to bring to the microphone someone who's been in the public spotlight now for two years doing incredible, courageous work on the COVID-19 pandemic, Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Dr. Cariotti received his undergraduate degree from Notre Dame, then went on to Georgetown University School of Medicine, received his MD degree and then went to the University of California at Irvine and did his residency in psychiatry. And he rose in the ranks at UC Irvine uh, as a psychiatrist, but also as an ethicist and uh, clinical investigator. And uh, his story is well known to many of our audience, but maybe not all since we have such a large international audience. And I brought Aaron on uh, to just say a few biographical words and then get into a topic of the day, and that is our trends in all-cause mortality. Dr. Cariotti, welcome to the McCullough Report. Thanks, Peter. It's great to be with you. Tell us a little bit about uh, your personal journey in the last few years with COVID. Sure. So as you mentioned, uh, I was a faculty member, professor in the School of Medicine at UCI, University of California, Irvine really for my entire career, 15 years following residency, uh, which was also done at that same institution. And about half my time was devoted to work in the Department of Psychiatry, clinical teaching, uh, research, and administrative work. But the other half of my time was uh, serving as the director of the medical ethics program at UCI, where I chaired the ethics committee and uh, taught the required ethics course to medical students. So at the beginning of the pandemic, I was working on policies related to the pandemic for the entire university, for all five of the UC campuses that had medical centers and hospitals. So you'll remember at the beginning of the pandemic, looking at Northern Italy and New York, people were worried we were going to run out of scarce resources like ventilators. So we developed a triage policy uh, in the event that worst came to worst and we had to allocate scarce resources. I then worked on policies for uh, allocating vaccines when vaccines were first released, questions, ethical questions about who should be prioritized. And I, I was very eager for a safe and effective vaccine at the beginning of 2021. Uh, but early on in the vaccine rollout, I started noticing uh, some worrisome trends. And from an, eth- uh, from an ethics standpoint, I was very alarmed at the readiness to, uh, uh, instead of encouraging 
accurate information and informed consent and allowing people to make their own decision and consultation with their doctor regarding whether or not to get vaccinated, we were instead moving in the direction of coercion and bypassing informed consent uh, with vaccine mandates. So back in August of 2021, I published a piece in the Wall Street Journal titled Why University Vaccine Mandates Are Wrong. And at this time, uh, the University of California, like many other universities, was considering implementing a vaccine mandate. And I decided I needed to sort of take a public position on that issue. One of the things that was really surprising to me, Peter, was that uh, in contrast to all the other policies that we had developed specifically for COVID, our committee, which had representatives from all five of the hospitals at the University of California Office of the President, our bioethics committee was never consulted on the vaccine mandate policy. We didn't draft the policy. Uh, We didn't really have much of a chance to give input on the policy. There was really no discussion. It sort of came down from on high and my efforts to get a conversation going uh, with that committee kind of fell flat. And that's the reason I decided to sort of try to get a public conversation going by publishing the piece in the Wall Street Journal. Well, sure enough, the University of California finalized its vaccine mandate. And it was at that point that, that I felt we were really doing something egregiously wrong. We were violating the basic principle of medical ethics, the principle of informed consent, which was articulated in the Nuremberg Code and in other major ethical codes of the 20th century. And so I decided that given my position as a medical ethicist and given that I was seeing people harmed by this mandate, I was seeing uh, staff that had worked through the entire pandemic actually being fired or threatened with uh, losing their job over this mandate, I decided to challenge the mandate uh, legally And so I filed a lawsuit uh, in federal court. You were one of the people who wrote a really excellent declaration in support of that lawsuit. We also had a declaration from uh, several other distinguished University of California faculty members. And I challenged that mandate on behalf of people like me who had recovered from COVID and had infection-induced immunity or what's often referred to as natural immunity after recovering from COVID. That case is still in federal court at the appellate level. So that's an ongoing case. But a couple of months after I filed that suit, uh, the university, well, initially they placed me on what they called investigatory leave. Then they placed me on unpaid suspension. And then a month later, they, they fired me. They dismissed me in December of 2021. So I, I lost my job for um, alleged noncompliance with the vaccine mandate. And I, I say alleged because I did submit a medical exemption twice to the university signed by my physician, which the university university rejected. So I did make an effort to to fall into compliance with their policy, but I wasn't going to compromise on the question of informed consent and on the question of vaccination. So that's that's a brief version of of what happened to me. And um, of course, the early, early of the, months of this year, the headline, university ethics professor gets fired for challenging the ethics of vaccine mandates, um, was kind of a headline grabber. So my my case did receive quite a bit of attention in the press and got me, I think, much more involved in public policy questions 
surrounding COVID in general, um, a lot of work on vaccine mandates, uh, but looking at some of our other policies that I think we can see now in retrospect, um, probably did more harm than good. I'm thinking of things like uh, lockdowns and school closures. And, and I've come, come to believe actually mask mandates were problematic as well. So Aaron, become- can let me ask you a question? You know, every hospital, I think, uh, has an ethics committee because there's ethical yes. issues that come up with patients, right? So uh, we have 5,600 5, hospitals in the United States, 2,200 acute care hospitals, 300 medical schools. Almost all of them have ethics committee. Uh, are you aware of any ethics committee that has officially endorsed health system or hospital vaccine mandates? Um, that's a really good question. I would, I would, the short answer is no. Uh, but on the other hand, and more concerningly, I, I haven't seen the flip side. I haven't seen ethics committees or major ethics bodies uh, publicly opposing vaccine mandates. So um, uh, strong endorsements, uh, I, I haven't seen, but um, I also haven't seen any strong challenges to this whole regime of vaccine mandates. So I think what we've seen during this pandemic, Peter, and I'm sure you can attest to this, is a sort of a passive go along with the program, go along to get along, uh, where physicians, where medical ethicists, where others who should be responsible for raising questions and for challenging uh, you know, s- certain policies and, and certain uh, <clears throat> approaches to COVID have been largely silent. I think there's been a, a professional climate of intimidation, of fear, of sad to say in, in science and medicine, of censorship, that has really discouraged um, independent thinking, that has discouraged saying publicly what many people believe privately. And so we've ended up in a situation in which, on the one hand, while a lot of people have concerns, they don't like what they see happening. On the other hand, they they feel that they cannot speak about it. And I, I guess my history that I just recounted could be Exhibit A, you know, of, of why people have asked me, you know, why are you upset that, you know, more people didn't speak out or say things along the lines of what you're saying? And kind of my first answer to that is, well, look what happened to me. It doesn't take too many uh, examples like this to, um, to cause a lot of people to keep their head down. But my, uh, but Aaron, my question was really about due process that, you know, here you have uh, an investigational uh, vaccine. Yeah. Um, many hospitals are, are self-insured. They have their own health plans. So their employees are also their, their own patients. They serve their own yep. employees as patients. You have the biggest ethical issue that's probably come up in, in the last century or so. And uh, I am inferring that uh, ethics committees for hospitals were bypassed on this. And when I look over all the developments of the pandemic, I can only recall formally ethicists being involved in one formal decision. And that was actually by the World Health Organization when it decided to not recommend remdesivir 
yeah. for treating patients. They actually did have yeah. ethicists on that panel. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. And that was my experience was on this particular issue, especially the ethics bodies were bypassed, not really consulted. And unfortunately, didn't, didn't raise that as an issue, right? Didn't stand up and say, hey, wait a minute, why weren't we consulted? Um, and and that, was, that was the first thing that got my attention about this, Peter, was precisely that, hey, why did this policy just come down um, without, you know, I had spent nights and weekends uh, for weeks, so actually months on end, working on urgent COVID-related policies. Yeah, I was on the I was on the phone all the time with the university's general counsel and the, the leadership at the UC office of the president. And then suddenly there was um, there was this vaccine mandate policy that didn't involve. Uh, but, but Aaron, couldn't this be developed as a talking point for um, other health system and health care workers that have been dismissed or are under duress right now with the vaccine mandate that in fact, the vaccine policies of hospitals, medical schools, health systems have actually not been approved yeah. by our ethics committee. That could be a yeah. talking point. Yeah, no, I think you're absolutely right. That's a really good point, Peter. Um, and then, you know, that naturally raises the question as to why. And I think some digging and some investigative reporting could uncover conflicts of interest. Uh, where you know a lot of NIH funding and other clinical trials funding ultimately comes from the pharmaceutical industry. And so the universities that rely on that funding for a lot of their research may be um, disinclined, right? But, to but Aaron, aren't there more direct financial um, incentives? For instance, the COVID relief funding, the emergency countermeasure funding right. going to healthcare, which comes with specific talking points, right? To endorse uh, vaccination as a central aspect of our yeah. economy. Yeah, that's right. F federal funding directly to hospitals uh, from CMS, the Center for Medicare and Medicaid Services, had specific metrics uh, that they required for hospitals in terms of you know, the percentage of your employees that are vaccinated. So a lot of that was driven by very direct and obvious uh, financial inducements that were tied to very specific metrics regarding vaccination. I think that's one of the major reasons why there was just no questioning of these policies because they were just so directly tied to hospital funding. Uh, hospitals cannot survive without Medicare funding. Uh, and, and then what about monies going to private employers. Uh, uh, let's mm -hmm. say a large private employer, like a defense yeah. contractor, do they also have countermeasure funding going with metrics saying, listen, you, you know, you get this money, but your CFO has to, you know, provide an affidavit that X percent of the employees have become vaccinated. That's correct. I mean, one of the really bizarre things about the vaccine mandates is that they were legally enforced um, you know, it's, I mean, it's, it's one thing for a hospital administrator to enforce uh, a vaccine mandate for hospital employees. I think that's wrong, but th there's at least a sort of a plausible argument to be made that, um, you know, people in a hospital have some level of health related expertise. Uh, but they, then you have, C you have CEOs of private companies dictating 
in this healthcare decision for their employees. And there's absolutely no plausible justification for believing that someone who runs a private business would have any expertise in dictating what kind of medical in intervention his employees need to get. Um, and and I, I mean, I spoke with firefighters in Los Angeles, for example, that you know, had clear documentation that uh, local funding for their fire departments were tied to vaccine rates among their employees. So there were there were a lot of these, not just at hospitals, but at um, you know municipal uh, organ you know government organizations, but also also private companies that were relying on funding from the government to get through the pandemic. You know, certain loans that were offered. Uh, certain monies for PPE that were offered, all of these were tied uh, to certain metrics that, that they were supposed to reach, uh, mostly regarding vaccination. Well, this would explain why an employer uh, wouldn't uh, have too much uh, misgivings to lose an employee who didn't want to take the vaccine, it's, right? Because the percent I, vaccinated goes up. Yeah, <laughs> that's a very, yeah, that's a very good point. Uh, that's one. That's one way to get your metrics up. Um, it, you know, you could you could encourage or even coerce certain people to be vaccinated, but you you can also just get rid of the people who refuse to be vaccinated, and eventually you'll hit your metric. Then what's going on behind the scenes, like for a large company like Starbucks, which you know has a lot of densely packed uh, little stores and employees, employees must be exposed to COVID like you cannot believe in Starbucks. Sure. And a company like Starbucks saying, no, we don't have any mandate. Uh, you know, I don't know enough about that company uh, specifically to, to comment on what happened with Starbucks, but I do know that there were certain companies that were able to um, get around the, the pressure either from local, state, or federal governments to mandate vaccines simply by um, you know, making it clear that we're just gonna lose too many people, uh, that this is not gonna work for us. You know, Congress exempted itself from, uh, from or uh, rather the, the executive branch exempted Congress when it passed it, its own vaccine mandates for you know, government, agencies or consulting businesses that had more than 100 employees. So there were these, there were these carve outs, you know, for special interests in cases where uh, it was, it was clear that our business is going to have to shut down because too many people are, are going to go elsewhere if we mandate this. So there, there wasn't consistency across the board, but usually, usually those things were not based on um, public health related considerations. They were, they were based on lobbying power or other interests that allowed um, certain people to kind of exempt themselves. You know, rules for thee, but not for me, uh, was typically what we saw at the at the level of the federal government. But wasn't there some market demand examples like United Airlines, which you know had a mandate, but employees could to take an unpaid leave? But there was enough employees that took an unpaid leave. My understanding yeah. is, in the end, United just tossed in the towel and said, "Come on back to work." Yep. Yeah, there were the, the sort of too big to fail companies uh, like the airlines where organized resistance among workers did seem to have an effect. And I think a lot of people felt disempowered with these mandates 
Um, and certainly if, if you were stepping out alone, as I did, you, you didn't stand much of a chance to challenge a regime like this. But where workers collectively organized uh, and pushed back, there were instances like that where uh, company CEOs backed down. And so labor uh, does have power and influence where it's able to organize. And in the cases uh, where that didn't happen or couldn't happen for whatever regulatory reason, um, we saw a lot of people just feeling disempowered, including in the healthcare settings. I mean, we lost so many, we lost so many nurses over these but, but, mandates. But Aaron, what I don't understand, I mean, I'm, I'm in a large healthcare system too, uh, the largest one in Texas. And, um, and I'm not a direct employee anymore, but I'm on staff, but the same was true for direct employees because I knew so many of them. I worked there for a long time uh, where the health system was very liberal in granting both religious and medical exemptions. My former employer in Michigan, I have very good inside information that, uh, uh, you know, the largest hospital in terms of admissions in the United States today, uh, granted, you know, a large proportion, roughly 25% of all the employees uh, were given medical exemptions, essentially, if they apply medical or, or religious exemptions, essentially, if they applied for them, they got them. I think what people are frustrated with is, uh, you know, why were systems like the UC system and UC Irvine, in a sense, walking people to the door? And why were other academic health systems literally granting exemptions? What gives? That's a really good question, Peter. And I, I don't know the answer to that. My, my best guess is some balancing of interest between the monies that might be lost from certain sources of funding like Medicare versus what's going to happen to our hospital if 25% of our doctors and nurses leave. Um, it, you know, in the case of the University of California, I think there were just probably too few people ultimately that stood up and said no. And so that was a calculated sacrifice that the university made that we can lose these people and, and still be okay. I mean, when you, when you threaten people with loss of their job, a lot of people give in, um, which, is, which is sad. I don't, I don't blame anyone actually for doing that. We all have responsibilities. Uh, many of us have families that rely upon us. And um, I, my own view is that people should never be pushed uh, into a situation where they have to choose between their job and you know their conscience or their job in a particular um, medical decision that they don't want to consent to, uh, or, but, you know, or 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 the, the the reality. I mean, people are seeing others uh, injured and dying after the vaccines, sure. and this idea that you would you know have to take an injection against your will and potentially lose your life or lose your job is uh, is clearly the most agonizing decision I think anyone. Um, has faced. But what I'm curious is, is how can two equally large health systems with presumably the same Medicare CMS types of uh, countermeasure offerings, yeah. How, yeah. how can one liberally grant exemptions and have really no riffles in their uh, employer base, no complaints, people who don't want to take it full exemptions? And why would others have their employees lose jobs? Do, do you think it's simply the relative reliance on these funds, or do you think there's a, a human element in the boardroom where some some yeah. board members, some decision makers, obviously without ethical 
committee input, some board maker members take a hard line and say, you know what? Sorry, this is uh, this is the way we're going to mm-hmm. do things. Do you think there's a human element there? Or do you think it's all relative financial? Incentive? No, I do. I, I do. That's that's a very good point. I think um, ideas and ideology of the leadership does play a role here. And um, you know, I know at the University of California there were there were some people at the office of the president that were vaccine enthusiasts that had very strong thoughts and feelings about the mass vaccination campaign. Who saw this as the golden ticket out of the pandemic as the only responsible thing to do, um, and you know ultimately human beings make these decisions. Someone once joked that a bureaucracy is an institution that has enormous power over you, but with no locus of responsibility, and that sometimes feels true when you're working for a large bureaucratic organization. These decisions are being made. It's not clear you know, who exactly you can pin them on. Uh, Everyone disclaims responsibility for the decision. For example, the University of California's defense in federal court of their vaccine mandate was, we're simply following the CDC recommendations, right? So then you go to the CDC and you try to appeal uh, your case or appeal on behalf of people with natural immunity. The CDC says, well, we don't mandate anything. We just make recommendations. So you you end up going round and round this merry-go-round where no one actually assumes responsibility. But at the end of the day, obviously, someone is responsible. You know, the regents of the university, the president of the university, the board of directors, the hospital, or whoever uh, does make a decision on something like vaccine mandates. And so the, the, the quality of the people in those positions, the, the information that they have, their open-mindedness, their ideological inclinations, I think all of those human factors play a role. And that's probably why we saw some diversity among even very large healthcare systems, as you as you said. Yeah, there's no doubt about it. Uh, we've been talking to Dr. Aaron Carity, former professor of medicine and director of ethics for the University of California at Irvine. We're going to pick up with a discussion and him on the other side of the McCullough Report. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report. Worried about the common cold, having it spread in your house, or even worse, SARS-CoV-2, COVID-19? Enter Cofix RX. Cofix RX is an easy-to-use nasal spray, povidone iodine, other special ingredients that keep the virus from moving around and spreading, intensifying in you and going to others. Handy, small bottle that can fit in your purse, backpack, easily taken when traveled. Don't leave the house without it. Cofix RX. Uh, go to our banner bar, click on it, and get a discount on your first purchase when you type in the promo code OUTLOUD. Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is a McCullough Report. Here on America Out Loud, we emphasize optimal health, and air is the most essential element for life. The average person inhales over 35 pounds of air every day, yet we seldom think about how to rid the air of pathogens swiftly and safely when we need to. The Genesis Fogger Plus HOCL is the only way to quickly and naturally restore air to its optimal condition. Visit genesisfogger.com forward slash out loud for a free ebook on everything you need to know about HOCL and receive a 15% discount on the Genesis Fogger with promo code OUTLOUD. With Genesis, you'll be ready for what's next. 
Let's get real. Let's get loud on America Out Loud Talk Radio. This is the McCullough Report, and I'm Dr. Peter McCullough. You know, it's relatively unprecedented that I have a guest that's so interesting that we go on both sides of the McCullough Report. I've only done it a couple times, and I tell you, Aaron Carity, I think, is one of the most interesting men in the world right now. And we spent effort and time on mandates, but I want to turn the conversation towards a disturbing trend in all-cause mortality and some signals that we're hearing from life insurance companies, actuaries, and other sources of population-based data. Uh, Aaron, welcome back to the McCullough Report, and tell us uh, the update here and what you're seeing and hearing. Yeah, so one of the trends, one of the really disturbing trends that we saw both in 2020, but particularly in 2021, uh, Peter, was a rise in what statisticians call all-cause mortality. Now, I know that people throughout the pandemic had a lot of statistics thrown at them, and sometimes the numbers and the data can feel sort of confusing and, and conflicted. But one way to cut through a lot of statistical noise, one of those numbers that's really hard to spin or to game is this, uh, is this number that we call all-cause mortality, which is just a fancy way of saying how many people die. And the reason it's hard to spin is that we can argue, Peter, about whether this person died with COVID or of COVID and whether this cardiac complication was related to a vaccine or not. But we can't argue with the fact that we have a body six feet underground. We have a death certificate. And so we have a baseline rate of deaths every year, of kind of expected deaths. And when the number of deaths goes above that, let's say five-year baseline rate, that's a signal that something has gone wrong. That's, a, that's something that the public health established needs to be paying very close attention to. So what happened in 2020 with COVID and with the secondary effects of policies like lockdowns is that we got a very significant rise in all-cause mortality, not surprisingly. But then the, the story that we were told, folks will remember, is yes, we've endured COVID deaths and lockdowns and all this kind of carnage in 2020 waiting for a safe and effective vaccine. And once we have this mass vaccination campaign, we'll be able to go back to normal and people will stop dying of this virus. And uh, that, was, that was the promise that was implicitly made at the end of 2020. And so the vaccines rolled out in uh, late 2020, early 2021, but contrary to expectations to what we were promised by the public health establishment, all-cause mortality continued to go up in 2020, uh, excuse me, 2021. And we saw very large spikes with the first wave of uh, vaccination. We saw very large spikes again in August, December of 2021, 25% elevated above baseline. And that was during sort of the season where most of the mandates came down. That was when the University of California initiated its mandate, for example. And then in January and February of this year, we saw another uh, spike with 32% above expected rates of all-cause mortality. And that coincided with the rollout of the boosters. So contrary to those promises and those expectations, we didn't see uh, mortality 
mortality rates going back to their pre-pandemic levels uh, last year and this year with the vaccines. And another, another thing that happened um, in 2021 as compared to 2020 in the second year versus the first year of the pandemic is that that elevated mortality, if you break it down by age, shifted toward younger ages. So in 2020, uh, we had more old people dying, which is not surprising because we know that old people are, are more vulnerable to morbidity and mortality with COVID. But then the following year, we saw that those excess deaths were not among the elderly where we, where we might expect higher death rates, um, but they were, they were increasing among uh, young adults, 25 to 45, um, and sort of middle to late adults, 45 to 64, and, um, and even 65 to 74-year-olds uh, saw more of a shift in all-cause mortality. So that, that raises the obvious question, why are millennials, why are younger people accounting for more of the excess deaths in the second year of the pandemic, the year that coincided with the mass vaccination campaign? And that's a question that has been taken up because the public health establishment, unfortunately, is ignoring these numbers. That's a question that's been taken up by life insurance executives and life insurance regulators that um, I and, and some other doctors that you and I both know have been meeting with these folks to take a look at um, take a look at what's going on because a lot of these numbers come from their own actuaries and as we know actuaries are pure numbers people they're not trying to prove anything they're not trying to test a hypothesis they're just trying to figure out how much should insurance companies charge for their premiums right so when actuaries look at these numbers of deaths as reported um, to them because of life insurance claims, they're, they're, they're seeing these trends uh, that match what we're seeing in the CDC numbers. And so life insurance companies are, are interested now, they're starting to get interested in asking some tough questions about, you know, why are, why are our claims going up? Uh, this is obviously going to impact our business model and potentially impact our uh, the, the rates that we have to charge our clients and our customers. And this may turn out to be um, a way to bring attention to this issue and maybe bring some pressure to bear on the public health establishment to look more closely uh, at this at this issue of all, all cause mortality. So, Aaron, um. I want to point out for our listeners, many are outside the United States, that life insurance in the United States, uh, I would intuit that the majority is paid for by the employer, the private life insurance companies. And, and yep. as a benefit of employment, a employee is offered life insurance. Now, once people uh, retire, uh, they're less likely to be carrying private life insurance policies. And so life insurance is a product, if you will, offered to employees through private employers. And so the life insurance companies contract with them. And this is a relatively a big deal because if their payments go out at a greater rate, people are making claims, the amount of premium they'll have to uh, 
basically ask of the employers will go up. And this is going to have shifts in the financial system, but it may be buried in this, quote, cost of, of benefits for employees. The CDC wonder system is different. And that's actually just, you know, data that are collected from, uh, I believe, the National Center for Health Statistics. And there we know, and I, I did post something on my Twitter feed, a nice graphic that shows that the rates of deaths of young working people have been steady for years and years and years. And then in 2020, they do jump up. And uh, there is a clear accounting for what they have as COVID deaths. Uh, there's also a segment in that jump up that's actually not COVID deaths, but it's additional deaths. And then in 2021 is the big rise. And that's a rise that's much larger than 2020 compared to prior years. And the sliver that's due to COVID is about the same, maybe a little bit bigger since Delta did influence some younger people. So here we have the confluence. Uh, I believe it's about 80% of Americans have taken one or more of the vaccines. And the CDC told us through October, about half of Americans, they estimate, have actually had COVID. So many people have actually had both. And do you think it's possible that this is a, a cumulative thing that if one gets one or two shots and then gets COVID, gets three or four more shots, is it possible that there is this cumulative exposure that leads to uh, disease or death? I think that's the most plausible explanation, right? There, people have put forward, uh, insofar as they've, uh, insofar as they've looked at this, people have put forward a couple of hypotheses to try to explain it. One is vaccine-related injuries, which, as I said, I think is by far the most plausible hypothesis. And I think it will be confirmed eventually by additional studies, uh, you know, beyond, beyond reasonable doubt, as they say in the courts. Uh, some people have suggested that the increase in mortality in 2021 may be due to things like missed healthcare visits uh, and you know, canceled appointments and canceled surgeries that we saw in 2020 as hospitals were focusing almost exclusively on COVID and other forms of medical care were sidelined. And I think, I think that could account for a, a little bit of what we're seeing, but for the most part, when you miss appointments like screening appointments with a primary care physician, uh, that's not going to produce an immediate rise in your risk of death one year later, right? So if you have type two diabetes and you go for a year with poorly controlled sugars uh, because you're not going in to see your primary care physician and getting your insulin, your medications adjusted, that's going to increase your risk of diabetic complications you know, over the next 10 to 20 years. It's not going to increase your risk of death the following year. You miss a colonoscopy and you don't get a polyp removed, that's going to increase your risk of colon cancer again sometime in the next 5, 10, 20 years. It's not, you're not going to die of colon cancer the following year. So I think that explanation is rather implausible. A slightly more plausible explanation is the rise in deaths of despair. So we saw alcohol-related deaths and drug-related overdose deaths go up by about uh, 28 to 30% during the pandemic. And that's very significant. So alcohol-related deaths went from about 68,000 to 99,000. Uh, Drug-related deaths went from about 70,000 to about 100,000. So huge increases there. Um, but e even if you take those, you take the suicide 
uh, excess suicide deaths, and you add all those together, you get a couple hundred thousand deaths, which is enormously tragic and had, has received too little attention and is largely the result of our lockdown policies and our school closure policies. But that only accounts for a, a relatively small percentage of the overall excess deaths. So deaths of despair could account for maybe 10 to 15 percent of what we're seeing in terms of the excess death numbers overall. But that still leaves 85 to 90 percent of those deaths to, to be accounted for. Um, and those are those are the reasons why I think, uh, you know, you combine that with just the timing of the excess deaths last year, you combine that with the safety signals that we're seeing in, in VAERS, you combine that with uh, the reports that we're seeing in the Pfizer data of the adverse events that were reported in the first three months after vaccine rollout. I think all of those signals point in the same direction. They point in the direction of these vaccines which were only you know, tested in clinical trials for a short period for three months on a relatively small number of people. They point in the direction of these vaccines being considerably less safe than we were led to believe. And I think there's more than enough data right now, Peter, for the mass vaccination campaign to, to stop, certainly for the vaccine mandates to be abandoned, but also for us to take a very hard look at um, this one-size-fits-all vaccine policy that we've implemented uh, and look at, you know, whether people under the age of 70 need vaccination at all, given their, uh, given their relatively low risk of mortality from COVID. Certainly, healthy children are at zero risk from COVID and, and need not be vaccinated. We're only putting them at risk. But even even young and sort of middle-aged adults, I think it's long past time for us to question our policies around vaccination for those age groups. So Aaron, I want to ask you just in closing, just a couple more questions. And it has to do with the timing of what's going on. You know, I follow the uh, openvarsdata.com, the red box report, and I, I open it up. I toggle over to US so I can just see the US domestic numbers. And I have to tell you, for months now, we've been stuck at around 12,000 domestic deaths that the CDC is recording. Almost all of them are recorded uh, within a few days of receiving the vaccine. And, and we yeah. know from prior studies, majority doctors or other people are reporting, maybe even people from the vaccine center reporting. But that's been re relatively static. The rate of vaccination is as low now as it's ever been. Um, so the, the, uh, you know, CVS, Walgreens, most health systems have actually shut down their vaccine centers. I mean, they're just, they're just empty. Um, yeah. So the rate of new vaccination. So the, the question is, will we just end up with a blip in these mortalities? And if the rates of vaccination stay where they are, uh, do you anticipate they're as low? Or are we going to start to get this disturbing trend of just continued high. And the reason why I'm asking this is, you know, in my clinical practice, I have patients this afternoon here coming up in a, in a few hours. Um, I am seeing more cases of, uh, I had a patient this week, a young woman employed, you know, she's got myocarditis, but it's 13 months since her last injection. I got called by a cardiac surgeon. He also has suspected myocarditis and it's well beyond a year. Now, some of these cases can be fatal with arrhythmias. I have patients who have taken the vaccine 
and they still have unresolved deep vein thrombosis. They actually have blood clots that are not going away with blood thinners. I've had now uh, two patients with explosive cancers, and these are well-managed patients where these cancers have just been explosive uh, in their development. And I'm bringing this up because we all recognize this kind of immediate risk of death, the allergic reactions, the immediate myocarditis, the immediate blood clots, uh, triggering um, atherosclerotic cardiovascular events, stroke, hypertensive crisis. These are all written in the literature, vaccine-induced thrombocytopenic purpurea. But I'm asking you, do you think there's going to be a wave now of these other forms of death, which in many ways could be viewed as either de novo or extension of the proclivity to have that disease to begin with, the proclivity to have cancer, now it's driven through uh, an oncogenic effect of the vaccine, let's say, or the proclivity for a blood clot or a neurodegenerative disease, but now it's just accelerated. Yeah. So I, I hope and pray that it's just a blip, but I do worry that it's not going to be. Um, I think some of the vaccine injuries that we're seeing are acute and happen within days to weeks or a month or two of vaccination. But you talk about myocarditis. We know that if you survive myocarditis, you still have long-term sequela in terms of morbidity and mortality that are significantly elevated. You, you would know a lot more about that than I do as a cardiologist, but you're correct that those are not the only side effects that we're seeing. Those are the ones that have received the most attention, the um, thrombotic and cardiovascular side effects. But you mentioned cancers. Uh, we're seeing that show up in the safety signals. We, I had in a department of 21 psychiatrists, two of those psychiatrists, one healthy 30-year-old, another healthy 40-year-old, uh, diagnosed with non-Hodgkin's lymphoma within weeks of uh, vaccination. And shortly after I learned about those two colleagues of mine that were, that were diagnosed with uh, this blood cancer, I got a call from the lymphoma expert, the, the director of the lymphoma center at a major cancer center in California, who had seen my work on vaccine mandates and was just reaching out to me to say that he was seeing a huge spike in, in leukemia and lymphoma that was, that was unexplained and coincided with the rollout of the vaccines. He's done some case reports. He's done some early research. He's going to continue to investigate that issue. But, you know, if you develop a cancer like that, you, you're going through rounds of chemotherapy. Um, some of those folks will survive. Some of them will die, but not for five to 10 years. Um, looking at the autoimmune uh, problems that we're seeing develop, again, those, those are chronic conditions that will increase morbidity and mortality over the course of a lifetime, but not necessarily right away. So I worry that um, we're going to see a rise in certain chronic conditions, not just cardiovascular, but um, neurological and uh, uh, oncological cancer. Uh, but that, you know, people are, <laughs> people are going to ignore uh, the source of, uh, um, of those problems and just sort of sweep, um, sweep under the carpet questions of what we physicians call etiology, the underlying cause of this disease. And so I think it's important to continue drawing attention uh, to this issue and, and studying the relationship between 
the vaccines and these uh, and the increase of various conditions that we're seeing in medicine. No doubt about it. You know, I received my degree actually in epidemiology from University of Michigan. I I um, thought, boy, that's probably the smartest thing I ever did. Epidemiology, which is the study of the distributions and the determinants of disease, including fatal disease, uh, is really what we're talking about today. And that's what uh, Dr. Cariotti has really brought to the table is that when we see a trend, we can't ignore it. It must be studied. There must be light shown upon it because if the trend is not fully understood, then things indeed could get worse over time. Dr. Cariotti, any final words for our audience? So I, I guess my, my parting advice is I, I want to restore people's confidence um, in trusting their own judgment and their own common sense. It's important for us during a crisis or addressing any major social or public health issue to get inputs from experts. But I think one of the things that happened during the pandemic, Peter, is that uh, people out, pe many people were willing to outsource their logic and their common sense. Uh, no one has a monopoly on those things. All of us are rational beings capable of um, thinking and spotting blatant contradictions and asking questions. And I think a lot of people sensed during <clears throat> the lockdowns and during the mass vaccination campaign that something was amiss and, and things weren't making sense. And, you know, public health uh, figures and talking heads on TV would say one thing one week and, and reverse course and say the opposite the next week. And so I think at this stage, it's really important for people to kind of have a restored sense of their own agency, of their own rationality, their ability to spot a logical contradiction, their ability to ask questions. And, you know, I think a functioning society and a robust democracy requires participation of everyone. And I would just like to leave citizens with the sense of, of their own empowerment that yes, um, read, learn, get information from people that have expertise in areas uh, that, that you don't, but at the same time, uh, trust your own instincts and trust your own judgment and you know, don't allow other people to dictate uh, things to you that affect you and your family at a very personal level. And that go against your own judgment. Exactly, exactly, precisely. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I'll let that be the last word, uh, Dr. Aaron Cariotti. Thank you so much for joining us on the McCullough Report. Thanks, Dr. McCullough. Let's get real. Let's get loud. On America Out Loud Talk Radio, this is the McCullough Report. <laughs>